Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Debra's won it. Perkins goes in first. What a legend. What a champion. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And what a pleasure as always to have you with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Always great to catch up with our great sports men and women. Today we are privileged to be joined by one of the greatest. His name is Brian Lara and he's with me in the studio. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, how are you going? Uh, how long have you been in Australia, first of all? Yeah, I got here at the very beginning of um, November. And um, you know what? I had a cricket match on the 5th of December, which got postponed. But I told them, listen, you need to fly me out in time for the Melbourne Cup. Oh. Uh, just, I've been to it a couple of times, and it's just the most amazing carnival. And um, I had a great time running to another West Indian Us- Usain Bolt there. So it, w- it was a-, a lot of fun. So I've been here. Roughly about three weeks, and um, Australia is like a second home. Well, Usain, we know, has a love affair with Australia, and we'll talk about your love affair with Australia. But what about the Melbourne Cup? You've been to many big sporting events around the world. What makes it so special? Well, well, first of all, let me just do a comparison. Once, one year, that it might have been 2009, and the Breeders' Cup was at Santa Anita in, in, in California the weekend after. And I went to the Breeders' Cup, which, as you understand, is the pinnacle of racing in America. And the, the atmosphere was not the same. Mm. The Melbourne Cup just has a special thing about it. Um, yes, the races is there. But you like these sporting events that actually where the event is taking place, but there's something much bigger. And I think, the, you know, the social interaction is amazing. Seeing all the fabricated um, tents and the sponsors, it shows that, you know, there's a great appreciation for the sport. And I, I just love the atmosphere. You know, that will be up there. The Melbourne Cup and that week will be up there with the Masters, golf. Um, I've never been to Super Bowl. But, you know, these sort of events where you, you know, if you have an opportunity to go through it, you know, you'd, you'd want to attend. Now, you're in Australia for another reason too. And this week coming up, you get to reunite with a guy called Dean Jones. Now, that's going to be interesting. That's amazing. And, you know, when they told me that, you know, we're looking for a host, I've spent a lot of time lately with Dean. In India, and I know I think he's presently there now covering a series. And uh, we do something called the dugout for Star Sports. And um, the way how he controls the show and, you know, the way how, you know, I may have to temper in a bit and let him know that it's not a Dean Jones show yes. on next week. <laughs> but I think he's, uh, he's going to be a great um, host on Thursday. It's going to be awesome. And uh, we've hardly played against each other. I think when I got into the West Indies team, 1992-93, um, he was sort of being at that time being pushed out of of, of things. But um, what a great Australian um, cricketer in, in during his period of time. Who was your hero? Who, when you were in the backyard or wherever you were playing cricket, who were you pretending to be? I, I must say, as a left-hander, and back in the day, at a, a very young age, I was an opening batsman. My first true hero was Roy Fredericks. 
left-handed opening batsman for the West Indies in, in the mid-70s. Um, Guyanese, short, um, just like myself at the time. So I loved him. But as I got older, I, I looked at everyone and I tried to take a little bit from each player. So for Gordon Greenwich, I wanted his technique. For Viv Richards, I wanted his aggression and the way he dominated. For Desmond Haynes, I wanted his resilience. You know, he didn't look pretty, but he was still there two, three hours later. So I picked something from each player and I sort of tried to get it into my game. And, um, I, you know, with the more knowledge I gain, you know, I, I, I appreciate every single batsman for what they brought to the, to the table. Are you in love with the game still? Yeah, I do love the game. I watched it a lot. Yesterday I spent um, the day in bed watching a test match between Australia and Pakistan, not the West Indies. And um, the game has moved on, obviously, with the advent of the T20. And now, uh, you know, you're hearing about the T10 and the 100 100 balls that's going to happen in England. I like the whole new present look of cricket because at the end of the day, you're an entertainer. You want people inside there watching the game. You don't want to play to an empty stadium. So um, it's great to see the game evolving. And, um, yeah, I I do the IPL. I do series uh, in the West Indies whenever the West Indies is playing. So I do have... My, my eyes focus on what's going on. It's been a turbulent time in cricket, in particular in Australia. Did you have a view what happened regarding Smith and Warner and what happened in South Africa? Uh, my view on that is very simple. Whatever the end result was, get it over with and move on. I'm almost sure that the guys were um, very sorry, apologetic immediately that they got caught. And, and, you know, many things have happened over the years. And I'm not someone to lament on the um, despair of other people. You know, it happened. The Australian Cricket Board and the ICC made their decision. And from that point in time, it was all about rehabilitation. And I saw uh, both players, uh, Steve Smith and Warner in Canada. I think they also came out to the Caribbean to play, to keep themselves active and uh, interacted with them. And I don't think any of the, any players that they were playing with, you know, sort of pushed them away. It's, it, it's these things that happen. And I have my comments on those things are not to... Uh, be negative about anything. It's just about moving on. And uh, they served their time, and I, I just it's lovely to see how they came out. Warner in the World Cup, in the IPL, destroying the bowling, and now Steve Smith in the Test Arena doing what he, what he did very well back in the day. You mentioned, Brian, all the different forms of cricket these days. There's been a question mark over Test cricket and its viability long term. Did you see many of the ashes and that innings of Ben Stokes? You know, that was the greatest advertisement for Test cricket you've ever seen. It's amazing, but it, it's it's going to be tough to to um, shake uh, the ashes. That is going to be around for a long time. What we really want to see, and and which I'm happy to see now, is that Test league. I wish that was around in my day. You know that you actually playing, and it, it's it's coming to something at the end. You're going to have a Test champion. Um, so that is in itself, it makes every series that you play important. If it's versus Bangladesh or back in my day against Zimbabwe, it makes it, you, if you play the series and you get your points, you know, you move up. So I like that. And I'm hoping that that gives uh, Test Cricket a, a little bit uh, of relevance uh, moving forward. Did you see that uh, innings from Ben Stokes? Yes, I did. I watched it. How did you rate that as that is, amongst the great that innings is, that, that is, you've is seen? That, that is up there. And... Um, you know, people talk about my 153 against Australian Barbados, but that is up there with the very best as well. And there was, a, I think, a young man in uh, South Africa or Sri Lankan, um, Pereira, I'm not sure. He also scored a, a brilliant um, match-winning in, in innings. And you, you look forward to those things when those guys come out. I mean, Ben Stokes in the World Cup finals as well, mm. unbelievable. And it makes the game a lot more interesting to people who... 
um, go out there and watch it. You, you are entertainers, and to see that, that's exactly what you pay your money to see. We can tell your passion for the game. So take us back to the beginning of the journey. It was a, a big family, one of 11, yeah. seven boys. Yeah, big family, one of 11, the last boy, seventh boy. And I remember my first cricket bat was uh, shaved out of a, a coconut branch by my, um, my big brother. And I played cricket. And, you know, I think one of the things that helped me, the fact that I had to, I had to earn my spot growing up. You know, so if it's street cricket or cricket in the garage, nobody was taking it easy. Well, you almost have to earn your spot at the dinner table, don't you? Exactly. When you're one of 11, you have to get in there and make your presence felt. Exactly. I remember many times, you know, I'd, I'd climb a fruit tree and I'd come home for dinner and, and, and I wouldn't be hungry. And my mother would pull me by the end. She said, do you know how much food I cook, how I divide it up for you that you don't want to eat? I used to have to eat. So where did the love of cricket come from? Was it from your dad, your parents? Yeah, my dad... Um, uh, speaks about his time playing cricket. I think uh, once his team made a uh, six and he scored five and there was one leg by. And if the donkey cat was picked him up to go into Port of Spain, he would have been on the Trinidad and Tobago team. He, he gives all, all, all sorts of um, stories. But he lived uh, vicariously through his sons. Um, he had the village uh, cricket league that he, that he helped run. And Winston and Robert and Richard and Lyndon, all these guys played cricket. So I felt that um, just being around that family, a sporting family. I, I played other sport. I played football. I played table tennis. Um, so it was sort of inevitable that, you know, if I had a little bit of skill, I was going to be pushed in that direction. But I still believe that um, a lot of credit has to be given with playing with overage kids, playing with my bigger brothers in the streets. And then I know now presently a lot of the coaches or a lot of the system tend to try to keep the kids in the same age group, same age group, same age group. But I felt that, um, you know, I, my progress was pretty much had to do with a little bit of that. And today, we're seeing a 16-year-old running out for Pakistan to play mm. in a test match. You know, I, you know, it's going to be it's going to be amazing to see what he's capable of. I think I'm right in saying that with your dad, one of your greatest moments in cricket probably turned out to be one of your saddest moments, and that was when you were first selected to play test cricket for the West Indies. What yeah, happened? Yeah. Um, well, I. Just came back from uh, St. Kitts. Uh, India was touring the Caribbean, and uh, they played a practice game against an under-23 team. After the first uh, test match, they lost the first test match, and I got 182 in that match. And I got back home. I went back to work at Angostura, and uh, my boss called and said, your dad's on the phone. And he, you know, he said to me, did you hear the team? Did you hear the team? I said, no, I didn't. He said, you're on the team. So my boss has worked. Angostura is a rum company, so I got a case of rum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and sent As you home. do in the West Indies. <laughs> and sent home, and my father had all his friends, and they were all celebrating. And, um, yeah, like the, the team arrived, and I joined the team. And back in those days, there was a rest day. And after the first day's play, he came to me. I, I didn't get picked in the final 11. He said that, um, can I have some more tickets for the weekend? So I asked Clive Lloyd, the manager, and he gave me an extra five, and I gave it to my dad. And... Um, Maybe a part of the story I can't tell, but, you know, I was pushed out of my room that evening, you know, by, by one of my, my older teammates. And he asked if I can give him a bit of room. So I did. And it got pretty late and I called the room and he said, you know, a, li a little bit more time. But, you know, I was a little... Um, was he playing cards or something like that? <laughs> a, a special television yeah, program that he had to watch? Yeah. Yes. And uh, I went off to my girlfriend and they couldn't find me. So my first test match, I broke the curfew. Just to let you know. Right. And uh, 5 a.m. in the morning, my brothers, my, uh, my girlfriend said, um, your brother's outside. And, you know, you could only smell trouble. Your brother's outside at 5 a.m. in the morning. 
And my dad passed away after the very first day of, of test cricket that I was involved with not playing. And the amazing thing, the old man, like he couldn't pick a better time to pass because on the rest day of the test match, we buried him and the entire West Indies team, Viv Richards, Clive Lloyd, Malcolm Marshall, Jeffrey Dujon, just sort of pounced on, the, on my little village. It was just amazing. And it was a perfect send off for a man who dedicated his life pretty much to his last son, the, you know, the, the last 10 or 15 years of his life to to see and make sure, make all the sacrifices for me to get there. So um, it was a very, very sad moment. And, you know, saddest part is that he didn't get me to, he didn't get to see me play at least, you know, one match for the West Indies. But I understood that um, he was happy that I, I got there. And uh, I think he expressed that before he passed. When young men lose their father, um, when you're at an early age, it's easy to get lost. Um, was that something that affected you that deeply or did you just realize what he'd done for you and wanting to make him proud in his absence? Yeah, I definitely wanted to make him proud. It, it was the start of my journey and um, I got some time off and um, pretty much just, you know, just to gather myself again. And I, I came back, um, I think we toured, uh, I, I went to Zimbabwe, the West Indies A team after that. But um, it's just to carry on, you know, what he started. You know, he wanted um, a West Indian player. And you know what used to, you know what actually gave me that um, encouragement to keep going? When I was playing school cricket, you know, we would be at Fatima College. And at Fatima College, a very prestigious college, there would be Joey Carew's son. Joey Carew played for West Indies. Brian Davis' the sons, they played for, for West Indies as well. Brian Davis and Joey Carew, they were watching their sons play. And in the middle there was Bunty Lara. And everybody was watching his son play. And, and just to see that whole group of former test cricketers um, around my dad and his son, who is actually, you know, playing better cricket than these, these guys who had the pedigree to, to, to do so. I think it, it gave me a lot of pride and it gave me that um, impetus to keep going, you know. And um, yes, you, my dad passed away, but I felt that, you know, this is my journey. And if it's something that I can do for him is to, to make this a very successful one. What was the send-off like, Brian, on that rest day? What was what was the funeral like? Because we know what the West Indians uh, are like as a people. It, you're a very festive people. So I guess probably there would have been a lot of sadness, but there would have also been some happiness in that celebration of his life, if you like. Yes, I mean, it's, um, it's there in my memory. First thing, you know, is that, you know, we were at the church and I got there and then the, I can see that the Clive Lloyd said the boys are going to come. And I could, I would keep looking back as we were just outside the church, and that's where they have the casket. Where in the West Indies, everyone has a look and going to the church and sit down. And a bus arrived, and everybody with their blazers and walking out the bus, and everyone left my dad's casket and ran towards the West Indies <laughs> team. They forgot the they forgot the old man and ran towards. This is this is historic. You know, it's a little, I came from a very little village, so everybody were iconic figures um, in the, in the Caribbean. I mean. West Indies cricket back in the, in the 1980s, as you know, we were the best team in the world. So um, they, they pushed him aside for a little bit, but I, I felt that um, it was just such a, a, a wonderful moment. And it, it sort of uh, brought tears to my eyes. My family, my, my, all my brothers and sisters were there. We've got a lot to talk about, and we'll do some more on the other side of the break. The formative years of the man they called the Prince, but many called him the King. Brian Lara, he's my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More coming up with Brian after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a pleasure it is to have Brian Lara as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Brian, back to the early stages when you were just starting out. Did you realise that you had a gift when it came to the game of cricket? Did you realise that early in your life? Yeah, I would have realised that, um, not knowing if it's, you know, what level it's going to get to because you're playing in, in, in your village, that's one thing. Then you're playing for your school and maybe the best batsman in the school or the best bowler tend to be the captain. So I was given that responsibility. But you can't match your skills up against, you know, what, you know, what you're seeing on TV or what you're listening to at the radio. Um, even saying that, though, when I played my uh, garage cricket and I put my, my plant pots up as, as feelers and I, you know, send a ball against the, the wall and hit it myself, the batting order was always Roy Fedricks, Roy Fedricks Greenwich, Richards, Lara. I always visualized myself in there. But um, I think that the true... Um, appreciation of my talent came with um, playing youth cricket, regional youth cricket, and matching your talents against kids from Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, and knowing fully well that this is the cream of the crop. And if you could be at the top of the tree then, there's a great possibility that you have a career in cricket. So I felt that youth cricket was uh, my first time of knowing that I could really make it as a cricketer. Tell us something about the the inter-island rivalry, because we think of the West Indies as one entity, but it's only in Test cricket, really, that it is that entity. Because when you go to the Olympic Games, Trinidad and Tobago competes as a separate nation. What's the rivalry like amongst the different islands? Uh, it's amazing. No, it's a bit different, because I think there's a little bit of franchise involved in it. So, uh Trent Begonian can play for Barbados and, you know, can move around in the, in now, but not back in the day. Mm. So the rivalry was um, amazing. And the thing about it, though, it's had a little bit of insularity as well on the Westernese level. I felt that when we were winning, everybody was fine. But then when we started losing, everybody wanted to, you know, back into their own corner. Um, there's sometimes occasions where, you know, we come to Australia on a tour and three or four Trinidadians will go for dinner Three or four Barbadians will go out for dinner. Maybe they're comfortable in that little circle. But um, that was a little bit um, a worrying at times. You know, the, the fragmented way that we, we were, as you said, different in politics, different in, in other sports. Cricket was the only unifying force. But the fact that we were in turmoil, it showed it reared its head even more. You know, that, you know, that, that sort of island rivalry wasn't, wasn't very healthy for our cricket. At least you can put that island rivalry aside now, otherwise you wouldn't be able to hang out with the big Jamaican fella at the Melbourne Cup. <laughs> I remembered him. He, he was 16 or 15 years old, and someone came to me and said, Brian, he wants your autograph, and he's going to be big. I said, is it going to be a fast bull? I said, no, no, he's going to be a 400-meter runner. That's what they said to me. I remember that day like it was yesterday. Yeah, He, had his, he came from school. He had his bag on his shoulder, and um, what a, a tremendous sportsman he became. We digress. We tend to do that a little bit on this show. So let's get back to cricket. And we spoke about that first selection for the West Indies. But what about the first time that you actually played, the first time that you put that famous cap on? What are your memories of that first test match you played? Yeah, it was it was in um, Pakistan. And Viv Richards uh, did not make that tour. Um, and goes back to the, the test league that we have now. If it were, there was a test league, you wonder if we would have missed that too because the, the test matches would have been very important. But I think he took a break and um, Carly Best was the first choice. So the first two test matches he played in and, and I didn't expect to play. But he went into this net where Malcolm Marshall was bowling and, you know, just net and there's a stumps right there and he said he's going to go and feel in the slip. He doesn't even have enough time to react. 
And Marshall nicked uh, one of the batsmen and, and he got hit on his web, on his finger, and split his web the day before the test match. And that's how I made my debut against Pakistan. Imran Khan, Wazim Akram, Waka Yunus, and the late Abdul Qadir. And I had the opportunity to play and um, pretty had a, a pretty good start. And it was a memorable day for me, you know, playing in my first test match um, under those conditions and in Pakistan. And um, it's a day that I, I would always remember. Did you think of your dad much while that innings was going on while yes, you were at the Yes, most definitely, most definitely. And um, just the, the fact that, um, you know, I got my cap, um, I got to go out on the field for the first time. And I mean, I, I was around already for a year and a half just watching, you know. Um, yeah, my dad is, 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 he's always in my memory. I mean, can you imagine hitting that ball that, you know, went past the Godfrey Sobers? Who's the first person I'm going to think about? Mm. You know, it was my dad. And he made everything possible. You mentioned that great Pakistan lineup, Wazim Akram. Is he the quickest that you've faced no, in your career? No, he's the best that I've faced. The best? Yeah, the best. Very deceptive in pace. He was not slow, but pace was not his, his main um, concentration. He yeah. was very deceptive, swung the ball both ways, would bowl at 80, kilometers, uh, 80 miles an hour and then pump it up to 95. Um, I just felt that he was maybe the best bowler. My nemesis, of course, was Glenn McGraw, but when you're coming about somebody who can make you look really stupid would have been Wazim Akram. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of uh, pace, who was the quickest in your time? I think it was a spell, actually. I think maybe I, I didn't play much against Shoy Bakhtar and he looked very mm. quick. Um, but a spell of bowling I had against Brett Lee in Trinidad and Tobago just before I scored my first 100 in Trinidad and Tobago, which was my hometown. I played 10 years and I scored hundreds all around the world, but not at home. And he came in, I think might have been the fourth or fifth morning, and he gave me a, a proper, proper uh, spell of fast bowling. And I think that that hour, and, you know, we speak about it that every time I see him, I said that was maybe the fastest I've ever faced. All right, the great innings uh, we're going to talk about when we come back on the other side of the break uh, and some of those magic numbers, numbers that only you can talk about in the game of cricket. What a pleasure it is to have Brian Lara as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Plenty more still to come after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with the great Brian Lara on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Brian, I mentioned before the break some of those numbers. The double hundred against Australia, your first test century. What are your memories of that? And the second part of the question is, did it give you the belief then that you were able to do anything on the cricket field when you were able to achieve something like that? Yeah, well, uh, I arrived in Australia to play my third test match. So my first was against uh, Pakistan in Lahore, second against South Africa, who was j- just entered back into international sport in Barbados. And I got to, to the Gabba and Ian Healy stomped me down the leg side, but he didn't really stomp me. The ball was out of his hand, and the umpire couldn't. It was a mistake by the umpire. He, he gave what he saw. And I was, I felt, you know, what bad sportsmanship that was, you know, just looking at the way how, you know, what, how it unfolded. And I don't know if it started to build up that, um, that sort of mental strength for me. Uh, we got to, we, we saved that test match. We got to Melbourne, 
And Shane Warne produced some magic very early in his career. And then I can't remember if it was nine or 11 wickets. And Australia won the Melbourne Test match. And you've got to understand the history. West Indies would be two up at that stage in the 1980s. They would get to Sydney and may lose Sydney because Australia always felt that they had a good spin attack. And then West Indies would win Adelaide and Perth and win the series 4-1 and go home. But here we are heading to Sydney, 1-0 down, with Alan Bourne feeling that if we get the better of them that we have done in the past at the Sydney Oval, we can go 2-0 for the rest of the series with two test matches to go. And I left uh, Melbourne knowing fully well that we needed to play well in this test match. And I knew all the history of, of the Sydney cricket ground and the spin. I, you know, I found that I wasn't a bad player spin even back then. And I remember that David Holford, the, the manager, saying that, um, you know, we could be in some trouble. And I said to him, I don't know why, I was only 21, 22. I said to him, don't worry about Shane Warne. He just picked up 10 or 11 wickets. Don't worry about Shane Warne. And he said, what do you mean, don't worry? I said, don't worry, we have him. And we got to, we got to Sydney and um, Australia made 500 plus and put themselves in a very good position and we needed to bat. And I'll give you a quick, quick story. I went out to dinner. Desmond Hayes, my roommate, took me for dinner. Um, just before we went into bat after the second day of, of play and um, it was a Chinese restaurant and I, I, I wanted duck and he said in his Beijing accent you can't order duck before a test match we're going to bat tomorrow I said Desi I want duck anyways I, I, I got my duck he turned his back while I was eating and you know when we went back to bat the next day he was walking out he got bowled from um, Greg Matthews and he looked at me and he said um, good luck with that duck you had last night well, 277 later, we were, we, were having, we were having duck in Adelaide, we were having duck in Perth. <laughs> so um, I felt that, uh, you know, till today, a lot of people still talk about that innings. And um, it's, you know, you listen to um, Ian Chappell or the late Richie Benno speaking about it. And um, it, uh, then I knew that, you know, I, I, can, I can stand at this level playing against the Australians who might have been the best, second best team in the world at the time. I knew that I had the goods to play good cricket. So do I take it that innings was born out of anger a little bit with the Ian Healy Yeah, I, I think Yeah, I think it started to build my mental strength because, you know, I, I didn't understand playing cricket that way. And, okay, we're playing, this is, this is a serious series, you know. And I felt that there and then I built up that, Hunger for big runs. I big up that um, the Australians for the next. You got to understand the next uh, fifteen years of my career became my focus. They of course overtook us as as um, the the best team in the world. So every time we came up against Australia, they became my focus. I always wanted to be playing against the best team in the world and performing. And the simple fact that it was done in the city of Sydney is something that you are going to remember for the rest of your life because there is a reason that you're going to remember. <laughs> yeah, that. yeah. Um, a couple of, a few years later, um, Lizelle Rovedas, my girlfriend at the time, um, produced a daughter, and I begged her to um, to name my daughter uh, Sydney, and she said yes, not a problem. Thank God you didn't make your first hundred in your first test match in Lahore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that'll get it wrong with Dino on Thursday night. All right, that innings, obviously everybody still talks about it, but there are a couple of others, and you've spoken about them many times. The 500. Did you think it was possible that anybody could do that? It was never in my thinking. It was, it, you know, like a lot of people would say, oh, he batted for numbers. But you look at this, uh, different scenarios, it's all team situation. And I remember that, um, that game very well. We, in England, you play 
a four-day game that starts on Thursday, uh, stops on Saturday, you play a Sunday league to bring the crowd in, and then you continue that four-day game on Monday. So uh, Durham made five or 600 runs. We were 300 for four. I got to 111 and sat down on Saturday evening, played the Sunday league, and came back on Monday. And the boat captains now, I think, were sitting to try to develop a match. You know, you know in England, they do that. That um, thing where who declares and yes. stuff like that. And they had a conversation about it. And I think uh, David Graveney um, said to Dermot Reeve, our captain, that he, he would want to play just for first innings because there's a couple injuries. Um, you got Brian. We don't want to take a chance and stuff like that. So we had the opportunity now to bat for the rest of the day, which we weren't even thinking about. And 111 to turn into 501, if you do the calculation, that's 390 in a day. Mm. I cannot set out to to do that. I pretty much set out to enjoy myself. And by the time I got to lunch, it was 275. And I said to Dermot, well, I'm looking forward to scoring a triple 100. I just did it a few weeks ago. I want to score a triple 100 again. And by TM on 400 and something. And there was 10 people in a dog at 10 a.m. And now at 3 p.m., there is 5,000 people in the stands. And, you know, the... The whole thing, and then the numbers start coming down on the board. It's McLaurin with 4-2-4, Graham Hick before I think scored 406. And it just sort of, again, it just unfolded. So, you know, that number was never in my mind. But uh, obviously by tea time, you know, you know what the focus is on. With all of these things going on, when you're seeing the numbers on the scoreboard, when you're seeing these people coming into the ground, obviously the weight of expectation is getting bigger with every ball that's bowled. How do you stay focused in a situation like that? This is something that obviously you did so well throughout your career. How do you manage to maintain your concentration with all of these things going on around you? You know what what made it easier? Just think about the other 11 guys on the field, how tired they were. And I felt that they they lost it. They they totally lost it. You know, the the energy levels left them. No one was going to pick themselves up at three o'clock in the afternoon. So even though I was gaining in, in, in energy, gaining in information, there was uh, something in front of me, it was, it, that made it easier because the opposition was flat and couldn't go anymore. So when you got to the 500, was it a sense of relief? Was it a sense of achievement? What, what was your overriding emotion? <laughs> it was a funny story because um, in the Caribbean, um, when it, you, know, you have that final 20 overs, and after 10 overs, both captains have to agree to call the game off if there is mm. nothing in it. So there it was. It was the nine, the 10th over being bowl. And I uh, can't remember who I was batting with. Um, he came down to me and he said, um, do you know that this is the last over? I said, it's not the last over. They got, they got 10 more overs after. They said, no, no, no. In England, the umpires don't have to wait for the captains to make decision. If the match has nothing in it, that's it. And I was on 497. And <laughs> obviously I've, I, I, the next ball went to the boundary for four and the game was over. <laughs> I wasn't going to let that opportunity pass. But um, it was a, un, a surreal, it was a, just an unbelievable six weeks. Leaving Antigua, scoring 375, had a, a, a street parade in Trinidad that same, a few days later, jumped on a flight, landed in, in, in Heathrow with the media and everything. Actually, I believe... Half of the English media came to Trinidad and traveled with me to England. And I got to this press conference at Warwickshire and, you know, they start talking these big numbers. You know, what are you going to do um, to English county cricket? And I, I reminded them very quickly that I toured England with the West Indies. I did not play a test match two years earlier, but I only averaged 28. 
and every little swing bowler got me out. Soft pitches, they just swung the ball, boom, wicket's gone. I'm, I was not accustomed to that. I was accustomed to pace, straight, you know, ball coming through a pipe. And I warned them very quickly, listen, I had an opportunity to play in England before and it was not very successful. But I just hit the ground running. And uh, Glamorgan into Leicestershire, into whoever else, culminating into that game against um, Durham with a, with a 5-0-1. And it was just an unbelievable run. What's better, Brian? I know it's uh, a bit like asking you which one of your children you love the most, but is 5-0-1 first class better than 400 at Test Cricket? <laughs> no, no, no. There is quite a few before both of them. Yeah, and before and I'll ask you, course. I'll yeah. ask you about another one, <laughs> which is a number that not a lot of people would probably have in the back of their mind. But the four hundred at Test level, was that the pinnacle for you? No, I, I think um, these are these are great numbers and records. But I believe the series that I played against Australia in nineteen ninety nine, where uh, my back was against the wall, I just came up from South Africa, losing a series five nil in turmoil with the with the board, I felt that I was going to be sacked as captain. Uh, my reason for not being sacked was the first test match against Australia was in Trinidad and Tobago, which is my hometown. And I believe that the West Indies cricket board feared some sort of reaction. And instead of putting him uh, a captain for one, they gave me two. And the first time a West Indian captain was ever under probation. Well, they destroyed us in Trinidad to go with six matches on a trot. And we got to Jamaica and I got booed at the airport. And, and I remember walking out to Toss and um, Steve Waugh, when, when I was being booed, Steve Waugh said, you know, what's going on here? And I looked at him and I said, thank God this is the last time I'm doing this job. And Australia made 249 that day. We ended up the first day on four for 36. And I went back to my room. I was not out and I was like, this is the end. And I came back the next day and I scored 213 with Jimmy Adams. And we batted the entire day. From 36 for 4, we were, I think, 375 for 4. And for me, that innings um, will stand head and shoulders above any other innings I've played, just because of the mental strength I had to show under those conditions um, compared to 501 or 400 or whatever the case may be. That, that 213 in Jamaica at Sabina Park against Australia was the best that I've ever batted. And just one other number while we're talking about numbers. You mentioned the number 375 before. Were you filthy with Matt Hayden when he overtook you? <laughs> no, and got no, that no, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, you got to understand that uh, both records stood for a period of time when I, the West Indies cricket was on a downslide. So, you know, a lot of people referred to double world record holder. And even if they're talking derogatory, you know, you had that title. And it's, it's just like it became a burden. And I actually wanted to be... Um, a good leader of West Indies cricket. And I felt that, you know, sometimes that got in the way. And uh, it was 4 a.m. in Jamaica, and my lawyer from England called me and he said, I got a number for you to call. You need to call uh, Matthew Hayden. He just broke your record. Uh, he might have been, because, you know, I get these calls all the time. You know, somebody's on 300 and it's overnight and they, I, I do a little bit of a of um, an interview and tell everyone that he just started batting. When you get to 300 and you have to go to sleep, you now start batting. Mm. <laughs> Let's wake up in the morning and see what happened. But Matthew Hayden might have been on 170, 180. So he batted the entire day. I went past the score. So I really was not um, focused on what's going on. And I called the dressing room. And at that point in time, it actually, I felt a bit of relief. You know, I felt that what I wanted to do was to be a successful West Indies captain. And I could now focus on that with that record out of the way. 
I didn't know I was going to do something six months later, to be honest. Yeah. I did. That was not on the card. And no one could say it's on a card because against England in 2004, six months later, I had 100 runs in six innings. Right? We were 3-0 down in a series. So no way 400 was on my mind. Mm. Well, it's another achievement that um, people still talk about. The only man ever to have the world record and then to get it back again. Um, just a, a brilliant part of a brilliant career. We're just about at the end of our time. We'll take our final break, and then we'll come back with some final impressions with the great Brian Lara on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with the great Brian Lara on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Brian, when you got to the end after all of the things that had happened in your career, being booed by your home crowd you spoke about, did you feel as though you'd squeezed every last drop out of the lemon when you finally got to the end of your career? Um... Mentally, emotionally, yes. Maybe not physically. I, I felt that, you know, I, in the back of my mind, uh, coming to the end, I felt that I had a couple more years of, of test cricket left. Um, I still had my, my dreams of seeing the West Indies uh, win a series in England. I still wanted to do well as a captain. But um, the World Cup 2007 brought a lot of different things to my table, and they weren't very good things. And it was a spontaneous move. It wasn't, you know, planned. But at that point in time, not performing very well as a team in the World Cup, in the Caribbean, I felt that the West Indies needed a new direction. They needed a new leader. And this young leader doesn't need to be shouldering, you know, a senior player like myself. He may need just to go on with his new team. And I felt it was, was at the right time to make an exit. But I did have, I did feel like I had a couple more years in me in terms of, Test cricket, which, of course, I had a lot more appreciation for than, than the one-day game. And just with regards to the West Indies, we've spoken about the highs and lows over the last hour. I'm old enough to remember that era so well, where it was just invincible. You, the team had the swagger about them. They didn't believe they could be beaten if they played at their best. And then came the next period where everything dropped away. Is there a turnaround looming? Can it go the other way again? Can the West Indies ever get back to that dominant period of the 70s and 80s? No, there's, there's no chance of that, that happening. Um, it's, the competition is too great. The infrastructure in other countries are totally different, and maybe because they have the funding to do it, a place like India, Australia, um, the whole setup is different. I believe that our success in the 70s and even before, all our cricket leading up to um, our last bit of success in 1995 has been individual skills coming together and playing amazing cricket as a team and maybe playing motivated by whatever factor. In the 60s, it might, in the 60s, it might have been the, the fact that we wanted independence from England, all the islands, so everybody rallied around that team. Clive Lloyd had a team that he wanted success. He wanted, okay, let's, we've got independence, let's be the best team in the world. And with Kerry Parker and everything happening, he molded a team for the next 15 to 20 years into the best team in the world. Now the game is a different game. It's about the financial side. It's the money side. And it's nothing wrong with it. If that is your motivation factor, there is nothing wrong with it. But we have not been able, as administrators in the West Indies, to 
hold on to that, embrace it, and know how to bring a team out. I don't know if you understand. Like Australia, the mon- there's no, the, I, I don't hear about much money situations in Australia. The Indians are well taken care of. But then you hear Chris Gill doesn't want to play because he's out in Australia or he is in India. Dwayne Bravo is doing his own thing. Pollard is doing his own thing. And you can't blame those guys. If there's no proper structure for their financial future, they will go outside and seek it. So at this present day, in world cricket, the financial side is the motivational factor. The West Indies Cricket Board does not have the, the resources to stop any young player from doing what he has to do to make a living for themselves. So we're going to struggle in that department. You cannot give a guy a hundred or $200,000 uh, contract when he can make $2 million playing cricket around the world. So we're going to suffer from that for some time. And unless they get some sort of structure where we can streamline and have the 15 and 16-year-olds coming up to understand the importance of um, the maroon cap, then we're going to always have that, that sort of separation in our cricket. Just one last question. And... Um Obviously, young people coming up through the ranks would seek your counsel and say, what made you great? What, what was the secret weapon? Would you advise them to take up table tennis? Because <laughs> it seemed to serve you pretty well. I think one of the key things, and I was you know, thinking about it and I've been asked that question, and um, I, maybe I've never answered it this way. But you know what? Standing in my garage as a, as a 10-year-old and putting a team on paper, and as I said, it's Fredericks, Greenwich, Richards, Lara, I would say to most youngsters, they've got to use visualization. You've got to see yourself in whatever sport that you want to do, whatever you want to do in life. It doesn't have to be sport. Visualize yourself doing it and see yourself achieving it. And that is, I think, half of the, uh, half of the um, situation. And I'll go back to that 153, that comparison with um, Sir Donald Bradman. At 5 o'clock that morning, I was up visualizing exactly what I was going to do on that day. I was going to block McGraw. Gillespie is bowling very, very good. I'm going to wait on McGill. I'm going to wait on Shane. Steve Roy is going to come and bowl a couple of us. And I planned it, and it just worked out. And that's the power of visualization. So any youngster that's coming up, I would like to see them put themselves in that position that they want to be in 15, 20 years' time. I think that has been a, a big um, catalyst in, in my achievements. We always love watching you. Um, even though we were hoping for an Australian victory, we loved seeing you in action. I think you actually got an honorary Order of Australia, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, uh, Prime Minister Rudd uh, was in the Caribbean, I think, for Chogum, the um, Commonwealth Heads of Government, and uh, he presented with presented to me at the High Commission, Australian High Commissioner's House in Trinidad and Tobago, and it's one of the proudest moments of, of my life to have that um, recognition from Australia. It's, it's like a second home. It's my daughter um, named uh, after this, one of the cities. And it's a place that, you know, every November, if I'm not in Australia, I wonder why I'm not in Australia. It's just a wonderful place to be. Well, you're an honorary Aussie, Brian, because you've got a daughter called Sydney. You've been to the Melbourne Cup and you've been through the Marquees and you're about to go and play Royal Melbourne. You can't get much more Australia than that. Thank you so much for everything you did in your career. And thanks for sharing the last hour with us. Thank you very much. Brian Lara joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you enjoyed the chat. We'll be back same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.